hello, hello. Welcome back to Comrades in Farms here on True Frequency Radio, iHeart, Tuned In, Talk Stream Live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F A R M A C Y, as in let food be that medicine and medicine be that food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. He was on with us uh, last show, uh, episode 24. We talked about data science and a little bit about probabilities and data analytics and all sorts of interesting stuff. And Brian's agreed to come back and uh, expound on a few things. So, Brian, welcome back to Comrades and Farms. It's a real pleasure to have you back. How are you this evening? Doing great. Thanks for having me back, buddy. I'd like Fantastic. to uh, talk about some data, get into some projects. We got a lot. Uh, <laughs> you and I have brainstormed a lot of different topics. So, where to start? It's wherever you want to. You <laughs> sure have. I hope people are ready to hang on because we're going to fly into some cool stuff tonight. <laughs> I got a laundry list of things to talk about. <laughs> uh, well, you. Uh, touched on a lot of different stuff regarding data science and probabilities and uh, analyzing and making meaning out of data last time. Uh, maybe you could uh, kind of drill into some of those topics a little bit more for us. Is there an area you'd like to start in? Uh, you're definitely more more well-versed in this than I am. <laughs> well, you know, um, I was thinking, well, I was watching the chat uh, from the from the video uh, when you posted it last time. And, and um, you know, I, I, there was actually a funny comment and I think it kind of hits on a topic I don't, I, I didn't explain, or I didn't explain it well. I don't even think I really hit on it. I don't really talk about like deployment versus data science, and like um, what a data scientist's job is is not the same as what a programmer's job is. And actually, a data scientist is not a programmer by any stretch of the imagination. And anyone who's a software engineer and a programmer who's listening to this just was like, yeah, no shit. Um, but for people who aren't experienced with it, you know, they, they, they might be seem kind of confusing, right? Because you're using what will people term programming languages, but I wouldn't really consider Python or you know, R or any of those really pro they're not programming languages. They're there are tools, they're mathematical tools that were built up over time and they have many roles. But their roles actually it's funny, because when we mentioned Python, there was somebody in the chat was like, I hate Python. And I was like, ah, oh, I found the software engineer. There he is. Or <laughs> there he is. You know, it's like, and that's the person, whoever said that, that's the person you want to deploy your code because they have a reason why they hate Python and it's a very good reason. Um, and so the tools that you use as a, as a data scientist, I don't care what my tool is. I will use anything at my disposal provided I can get the result that I need to. So I use, I get like, I cheat, you know, it's uh, uh, before I open up a data set, if it's not, if it's not very large, like if I was given a sample of data uh, and I'll use the time series example, the first thing I do, and if you watch my video about the time series data, the first Excel tutorial, I always break up time into like three or four major chunks because that's how I'm gonna grab that data. Um, I do it in Excel. I do it in Excel because it's super fast and depending on the data that I'm given, time series is manipulated in a lot of different ways by different software. So like Oracle hands it differently than Microsoft SQL. So if I have a small data set, a couple thousand records, I'm just gonna parse it real quick in Excel and dump it to whatever tool that I'm using. And I have no problem doing that because when I'm done, what I'm gonna say is, well, what you have to do is grab the data this way with this type of date format. And we're gonna use a, we're gonna use a stripping function. And then I'm explaining that to a programmer who's gonna use whatever language that they think is the best way to deploy those options. And then they'll, they'll, they'll ask, they, it's funny, I have a really good uh, friend, uh, a very senior programmer uh, that I work with, and he always asks me, well, what did you, how did you get here? 
And I was like, you know, you know how I got here. He's like, you used Python, didn't you? I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> and he's just like rolls his eyes at me and, you know, and, and, and curses me out because then I have to break down the, the, the packages that I was using and we have to strip out and look at all the underlying code and be like, well, what's the real mechanism of action here, especially when math is involved? You can't take uh, certain mathematics for granted. So like what I like to think about is you, if you're already in the programming world and you're picking up the data science piece, uh, you really got the best of both worlds. But if you're picking up the data science piece and you have no experience with the programming end, I wouldn't pretend to. I would go to an expert. If you're really looking, if you're looking to deploy something, find the expert who has 20 years experience, you know, that, that were the first people to, to, to break Windows 95 and rewrite it, you know, find those people and they're going to deploy your code in a really efficient way. Um, don't use the tools that are hyped up um, because really it's the, what well, I'm saying, don't use the tools that are hyped up. Uh, be, feel free to use the tools that are hyped up, but don't try to use them for the end all be all, right? They're a means to an end. So the flavor of the week right now is Python. And then tomorrow it's going to be whatever. It was R for 10, 15 years and, you know, lost some ground and then something new is going to come along. We're going to use that. We're going to forget all about the other tools. Uh, so, so I really encourage people to be eclectic, um, but don't pretend to be a programmer with this stuff, you know, like leave that to the experts. Um, and they're going to find the better way of kind of getting out. And then that kind of like leads into like, data munging versus actual mining, which we'll talk a little bit more about mining, which is finding interesting data sets. You know, we talked a little bit about that last time, but when you're looking through data, um, you don't want to over-explore your data, okay? So if you're just going in, you say, well, I wanna see what the data tells me. Uh, that's really not a good way of going about a, an exploration or, or munging. You should have a, 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 a question in mind. So, um, and usually your question is initially the wrong question and that's okay. You might go in looking at one thing and then come up with a different question. But if you go in and you just start pulling data apart and trying to find something meaningful from it, you're more likely or not gonna come up with a, spir a spurious relationship. We talked about those last time, the, uh, the, the Nicolas Cage films directly you know, correlated with swimming pool deaths. Like there's no cause and effect relationship there. But if you have a data set of 37 columns all right, and you're trying to mix and match things and they have these really nifty tools that I do not agree with in any way. What you do is, um, uh, what, what's it called? I think there's one orange uh, and there's another, I can't think of the name of it. Orange is a good example. Uh, uh, you can drag different columns in and, and keep dip, dropping them or like Tableau, if, you, if, you're, if you're using Tableau, which, is, which, which two of my variables are gonna give me an, a, a relationship? Well that you shouldn't know that's not how this works it, it should be i have a thought that two variables are going to have a relationship and now i'm going to test if they do if they do they do if they don't they don't if they do then i'll ask more questions if they don't i'll think of a new question and i don't like these types of software that make it too easy to to kind of analyze these things because you're going to introduce a ton of bias into whatever analyzation you're doing um and so you know you have to well, I'll use the example again of dragging and dropping in uh, uh, variables. I could give you um, 100 random numbers, and I will find relationships between 100 random numbers. I eventually will find it. And that is the example of like the p-hacking, right? And, and you, you, you can't continually run things. So 
I think the message that I want to get out there is, you know, be cautious of the tools that you use. You know, use the right tools for the job and think about your data the right way. You know, think about questions first. It's the scientific method. You, the, first, you have a question or a hypothesis, and then you test it. You don't test something and then formulate a question from your test. Uh, and data exploration and data monging works exactly the same way. Um, you know, and, and, and when we talk about questions, uh, you have, uh, it's very hard to ask the right question, but you will eventually get there. And so I like to think about it like when people go to the gym, uh, they'll say, I want to lose weight and bulk up. Well, do you want to lose weight or do you want to bulk up? Because muscle's heavier than fat. And so if you're losing weight and then you're gaining muscle, could you be the same weight when you're done? Maybe. So the right question or the right statement is, I want to be thinner and I want to have larger muscles. Well, that's a much different statement than I want to lose weight. Okay, so you have to think about it in those types of terms. Um, and, and you have to break down your data into the right type of uh, category, uh, I'm sorry, attributes that it's associated with and the data types. Um, and, and I don't want to get uh, too much into data types because I think that they're very big, broad uh, uh, concepts um, with like the, the way that you'll combine data. And we'll talk a little bit of that in data mining, but I think the, the attributes of your data are where you'll start to understand the right type of questions to ask. Okay, and that's the difference between kind of the domain aspect of data and the abstraction of data. And those are two very different concepts. And so what kind of data types do you have? Well, you have ordinal data, so it's sequential. Well, I'm sorry, uh, ordinal data isn't necessarily sequential data. Um, order matters where sequential data can be looking uh, a little bit different uh, as opposed to like, I, I would say sequential data is much more uh, closely related with time. Uh, time and date. Ordinal data is more of a uh, getting into the categorical area and then there's categorical data in itself. So you kind of have these like major sets and then subsets of attributes. And so one data type could be in both areas uh, and that the, a subset is more strongly applied than kind of the um, superset. You think of it that way. Um, and you obviously you have quantitative data. So you measure of something. So when you think about the abstraction, the thought that you need to have is um, take take away all your variables. Okay, I want to find the relationship, the correlation between two quantitative variables. Okay, that's a great that's a great question. Now, what are the two quantitative variables that you're looking at? Uh, do, and then, or would you say I want to know the summation of a quantitative variable per each ordinal variable associated with it? So when you start thinking about that. You're going to gravitate to the right segments of your data in order to then isolate the, the, what you're looking at. So if you're looking for ordinal data and you're not dealing with an ordinal data type, well, then you're obviously looking in the wrong area. And that's easy to say, well, yeah, duh. But when you're in the middle of doing something and you're in designing more advanced cleaning methods and you're starting to think about how you're parsing your data and grouping it together, it's very easy to start finding an interesting trend with a data type that really wasn't part of your abstraction, okay? And the abstraction is nothing to do with the actual data itself. That's why it's an abstraction. So you really got to pull back. You've got to take the, the immediate burning kind of desire to just slice up the data and, 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 and try to find meaning in it and, and, and think about 
what what's the real purpose of you getting into it and then you'll start really exploring your data and you won't introduce biases because you'll explore the data uh, with an intent uh, and then if you have to re-explore your data and you use a different sample so once you kind of touch a set of data you really have to like throw it out if you're not finding what you need to um, and find a different data set and that's also really important too especially when you're repeating your experiments um, and talking about documentation we'll get into all that uh, you, you can't just go into the same data set again and again and again, just keep hitting it. And that's another problem I see all the time with people, you know, trying to um, find meaning uh, or, or trying to slice their data in a way to help them make decisions. And they keep looking at the same data set again and again and again, and they're not changing anything about it. So sometimes I, I like to, what's another way you could do, do deal with that situation? Well, if you have a data set and there's not uh, you're not getting a lot from it, you're asking questions and you're not really seeing what you thought you should be seeing, well, you could start changing the variables. You can also start changing the structure of the, of the data. Um, I think a good example here is the difference between taking points in time and looking at where are we today as opposed to the timestamp of an item that becomes static. Uh, and those are kind of different ways of looking at the same information. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say um, you were looking at the volume of something, okay? And you kind of have an entry point for your data and a, 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 an entry point and an end point. Well, let's say you have a, a, a BTU start, BTU end, okay? Well, the start is only ever the start. And so you can't abstract beyond that initial piece of information. What you could say, though, to change that is, well, I have my, my bookends, I have my beginning and my end. Well, I could plot this along a, a given period of time, and I could say, at this time, what was the BTU? That's a, that's a different question than saying, what was the start point of that BTU output? What was the end point of that BTU output? And when you do that with millions of records, you're going to get a different uh, uh, output. The, the output you'll get is your total volume um, that you're looking at as opposed to sliced snapshots. And I think that most of the data that we deal with are sliced snapshots and people will typically start grouping things and, and, and put the data into, a, into a, um, a frame of reference that you can't get something meaningful out of it. So don't be afraid to just uh, re-query um, and look at it completely different. You know, if you're, you're doing a single, uh, if you're doing like maybe a transactional approach, uh, switch it. Make it uh, so that you kind of have more of a, a, a like a dimensional model that is giving you a wider output. Or you have a really wide output, swap it. Uh, melt it down and, and, and pivot the data and see what it tells it to you. Uh, take subsets. Put it into a simpler tool. If you're spending all your time writing code um, and you're getting stuck on doing the transformations, make it simpler. You know, those are, those are better ways of, of kind of getting into it and, 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 and getting something meaningful out of it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, just for our audience, so they can understand the difference, could you just define the difference between data mining and data mining? Yeah, well, data mining is uh, not about exploration of data. Uh, it is about using uh, very specific techniques to extract uh, meaningful data. Um, and so the data that you're going to use when you're data mining, or I'm sorry, the techniques that you're going to use with data mining are a little bit more finite, okay, and they have established practices. 
where data exploration and data monging is is not. It's you're kind of you you got to slice things as as you see it necessary to do so. So you know we talked a little bit last time about like the different types of of data categories or like the index. So we said talk about item sets. Um, and we I use I think I use the example of uh, the shopping uh, center, right? So you you buy milk, you buy beer, and then you buy something else. Uh, what you want to do is you, when you're data mining, you want to take something like an a priori algorithm, okay? And this is a um, a bottom up approach to frequent item sets. It is a standardized mathematical algorithm. You should not change it, and it only applies to certain data sets, certain data types. So if you are looking for, let's say, you would like to predict, um, and then there, then I just said actually a keyword. Uh, when you're data mining, you're looking for a prediction in your data. You're looking for that machine learning flavor uh, that you're not going to get in an exploration. So I want to uh, predict the expected. I'm just going to go back to your your heavier uh, temperature data in my head. Uh, the expected BTU output for a given temperature. Okay, why why would that be interesting? Well, if you start pairing temperatures, uh, average greenhouse temperature with a BTU output then you can predict over the next week how much fuel you're going to expect you're going to put out it's not enough to just say well i burned an average of this month or i took the median and i'm going to say i expect to burn that much you can do that but if you really want to get specific with your tools you would say for a given temperature is the btu going up is it going down what is the the frequency that i'm seeing two types of outputs together and then you're getting really precise outputs. And maybe BTU range isn't, isn't as good of an example when you need to be more precise like that, because you could use it for um, the types of, uh, let's say a pH range and a variable that you're introducing to a set of plants. So if you use an a priori algorithm, we'll use that for, a, it's a very, I think it's a good place to start for, for a lot of these concepts. And there's more, you know, there's clustering of data. Uh, data looks more like one type than it does another. Okay, so you could say, um, well, clustering classification, clustering is a sub kind of category of classification. You could say, um, when I see a pH range that is more than one standard deviation outside of the norm, I'm going to take an action. Well, now you're clustering your data into these sets where you're looking for an outlier. That is data mining. Your data is already clean. Your data has already been explored. And now you're asking really meaningful questions about how to use the data to have precise predictions. And those predictions in data mining are for machine learning concepts. Whether or not you deploy a model, you can still run these, um, these formulas and come up with data outputs where then you can start seeing the trends. And when I say seeing, I don't mean visually looking at a piece of paper. You actually kind of need to start visualizing the trends with, with visualization software. And we'll, that's a whole nother sub I got, I got lots of uh, uh, bullet points about data visualization here. Um, but you're going to want to start taking that, that, that piece of data and then doing something with it. Um, and you've already made a meaningful inference. So like if you had your outputs and you know that it's always uh, sequence, you know, item A is followed by item B. When you see item A, you know from your data output, item B is coming along. Um, and so you don't necessarily need to have like a really deploy a fancy model. 
the, the tools that you're using are giving you that real advancement into uh, uh, the expectations of your question. And so, you know, those are the biggest differences. And, and, and it's not, um, I, I would say it's, it's not always about like kind of the machine learning flavor, but that's kind of the heavier emphasis on a lot of the data mining techniques because that's what they're used for. Um, there are many types um, and I will actually be doing a whole uh, uh, article about the different types of techniques and when they're applied. And this is just standard textbook stuff. Um, a lot of it will be regurgitating, I think, um, uh, known practices because I believe that the known practices that, it, that, that, that are established well and are currently in use, like uh, uh, the, the way um, Amazon, their prediction engine, uses a very standardized formula. Now, they probably have their own little spin on it, and I'm sure they have very advanced mathematicians working on it, but it, at its core, it is a standard type of, of data mining technique, and I think that those are the tried and true methods. And so uh, those are the ones that, that I'm going to be getting into more. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, uh, if you have a tried and true method, like don't reinvent the wheel, right? It uh, sounds like uh, data mining is more sort of like sifting through data, and data mining is more like you really already kind of know what you're doing with it. You're just looking for specific types of data. Um, kind of. Um, I would say that uh, you know, yeah, that's that's that's. You might say, well, what's really the difference, right, between then sifting through data and then sifting through it with a purpose? I think that the data munging is really the dirty work of getting all your data types and attributes to the point where you can use them and then figuring out what needs to be done to the data to even make it useful in the first place. And that's where you should really be thinking about, like, oh, okay, this whole aspect, like these columns are garbage. <laughs> like as you're saying, sifty through it. Like no, just throw all of that right out. We're only going to look at these seven columns over here, and you'll get a lot of that with 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 uh, standardized mecha uh, mechanical kind of functions that are being captured, or or any type of software that has like multiple ports that it's picking up data from. Ports are not turned on, so you get these junk columns all the time. Like that's data monkey. Get those out of here. Junk columns <laughs> like what? Like zeros come for row after row after row. Like yeah. Like just complete sensors off and I just didn't want to kill the database yet because I thought that might come back later. <laughs> right. And that's why that's why the, the, the engineer makes just makes it, the data happen and then passes it off to someone else and says, make sense of this because <laughs> Here you go. I didn't have time to clean it up. <laughs> but you shouldn't have to. And that's the point of the first step, you know. You should be able to turn off a sensor. You shouldn't go be going into making changes to your database. It should be turned on and off when you need it to be there. Um, but your big set is here, and then your data mining from here, and then you're visualizing from here. So you just keep refining it down. Gotcha, gotcha. Very interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think. I had another question there, but uh, I kind of got lost in the in the discussion. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> That'll happen. Uh, I, I do want to say uh, for people who haven't seen the video that you did with my uh, greenhouse data, that was a really interesting way of looking at data and seeing how you kind of like filter through things and kind of start to understand the process of how to like make more sense of the data. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I think I liked, well, I started with time um, and I'm, you know, there's, 
it's going to be the most common data point I think people run into uh, is that there's a lot of you know uh, different ways of, of summing and averaging and medi medians and stuff like that of different uh, uh, variables. But time is a universal variable that is associated with a lot of data. And so when you have a good grasp of how to think about time, like um, I'll give you a good example. One of the things that I use as a standard tool is I have a calendar in a SQLite database that I attach to some scripts. Um, and what I'll do is um, all it is, it's every attribute about time. And it runs from 2015, or the, my current calendar is from 2015 to 2032 or whatever. And I'll have to update the code in 2032. Uh, and I typically don't work with a ton of old data, so 2015 works for most of my historical needs. And it has the date, it has, it has a single a row as the observation for the variables, which are date, uh, date time, uh, the day of the week, the numerical day of the week. So Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is different than one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, we have the weeks of the calendar year. I have the months, the numerical months. I have the years. Um, Uh oh, it broke up. Uh, you broke up. It's um, uh, the date, and uh, let's say uh, uh, for this example, well, once you connect it, then you can use all the other attributes that, that you've made in this this type of calendar. So uh, the date here is equal to the sensor time reading, and so then what I can do is I just say, well, give me all of the year that matches 2020 and give me all months that have uh, a one in them or something like that. And then, then, then your, your extraction of the data becomes really simple. And so when you start thinking about it in those categories, then your mind time that could be important to me. So there's really interesting ways of slicing it up. Very interesting. Well, we're coming up on the break here in about a minute. Uh, I found it really interesting how uh, I hadn't thought about dates and times in the way that you covered that in that uh, video. I, so I found that really interesting. And uh, it definitely makes a lot more meaning out of it. Um, you know, seeing you break it up into different weeks of the year, night and day, you know, that sort of stuff is stuff that I hadn't really even been on my radar in my data crunching. But uh, we'll come back to this after the break. we got about 30 seconds. So, uh, uh, you are listening to Truth Frequency Radio. You are listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio. iHeart tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F A R M A C Y. Isn't what food be thy medicine? Medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. We're talking about uh, data science, data mining, data munging, and all sorts of other interesting stuff. And we'll be back to drill into some more details about that right after the break. Thank you for listening to Truth Frequency Radio on the Pharmacy Seeds Network. Catch you on the other side of the break.
back to you, comrades in farms, here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network. That's F A R M A C Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. We're talking about uh, data, data science, all kinds of interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, Brian, I was kind of curious. Uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of my greenhouse related data is like people always are like, why do you want to chart all this? And, or why do you want to capture all this data? And my thought was always, I want to be able to chart it and I want to be able to visualize it. And from my perspective, visualizing it is a way for me to understand that data better. Because, you know, when I first set it up, I had uh, I just had data captured and I had like a web page with charts of data. And you could look at what the temperatures were every minute. But, you know, when you've got 25 rows of data, 25 rows of different sensors, you look at that, it just you go blind trying to look at it. So I finally did get it into a charting program, and I found that to be a lot more useful. But I know you have a little bit more insight on that. So if you could uh, go into visualization a little bit more, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, visualization is like a whole big piece that we haven't even gotten into. Um, and I gotta, we have to replace your line charts, man. I just, I see them when you pan the camera around. <laughs> Every time you hit it, I just like, there's a little piece of me that just goes off. Yeah. Those 50 lines all over the place. It's just not, you're not getting insight from that. Maybe you see a couple of trends here and there, but, but that's not, it's not the all, all you can, you can do. Well, I mean, okay. Why, why visualize? Um, first, uh, people, so like, I'm really interested in the psychology, uh, behind visualizations. Um, I have a really great book um, uh, that actually I'll bring in a, 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 after the next break. I'll grab the book. So uh, I recommend it. It's a very easy read. It is like kind of the history behind visualization techniques. And it goes as far away back, as far back as like ancient Rome and how people were trying to visualize data back then. And they kind of show uh, uh, how far uh, cities are apart. And it kind of gets into uh, like even to like the 1950s when you see like almost like propaganda posters and how like data is like manipulated. It's really, really cool. It's a, a and for somebody who's not maybe wanting to read about um, data visualizations, most of the book is the graphics and it kind of explaining the psychology behind it, how your eye gravitates. And so anyway, my, my point of uh, all of this is that when you get into the psychology of the way we interpret numbers and data. Humans are really bad at uh, uh, predicting um, and finding uh, actual patterns. Uh, we will apply a lot of our own um, personality into data, and our and and we see trends when there are not. So there's like the, the there's fallacies that that exist in kind of this type of domain where you know we're going to apply meaning to something has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Um, and, and when we do that, not only are we seeing trends that don't exist, not even trends, we're seeing things in the data that are not there. Um, we also are really bad at seeing what's random and randomness is, is, is important. Randomness kind of goes along with the, the kind of the clustering. Um, so when you're getting these pockets of, of randomized data and it is truly random, um, so it's important to test whether, you know, how random your data actually is. And there's ways of doing that. So if you're trying to do like a statistical output and you would say, well, is my data truly random? You couldn't look at it and say, well, yeah, it looks random. You would need to test it against a formula to determine how well you did in doing your data collection um, or you, how you're generating your data. Uh, and that will kind of help guide decisions. But an interesting way that this can be actually shown is if I gave you a piece of paper and I said, um, I want you to make three types of marks. Um, an X, 
a circle and a triangle. And I want you to fill the paper with a random pattern, okay? And then I generated, let's say I took that same uh, piece of paper and I used the computer to plot a grid and I told the computer to do the same task. And computers are very good at randomizing things with the right formulas. Um, what, what we typically find, I say we as if I have a team of people studying this, what you typically find <laughs> is that people will um, create random and actually nice and neat ordinal uh, sequences. So they'll have a whole cluster over here and then they'll have a nice little space and then they'll do another cluster over here. And they're going to say that that's random, right? Because I have a space here. And when you zoom out on this and you put a couple of them together, it's all like one nice neat pattern, almost looks like wallpaper. Uh, but when a computer does it, 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 you actually will find segments that are looking completely normal and ordinal, and then it kind of goes haywire, and then you'll see like 50 circles, and then no circles for, for a ton of time, and that's just how the random generator happens, right? You're driving down the road, what's the likelihood that you'll drive behind the exact same car that you own? You think, well, that's not very likely. Well, I don't know. How likely is it? I, I, you can't say that. And so for your, yourself to be like, oh, that's weird. I just passed. I'm following behind the same car that I drive, and the same car just passed me. What are the chances? It's like, well, um, you know, the, the, you're not good at you, you can't, like, we, we, we do that with data. You can't do that with data. <laughs> you can do that driving your car, but you can't take a data set and start inferring these things to it that have no meaning whatsoever. So that's why you visualize. You take these large chunks of data, which are the domain, talk about these kind of rows of your on your website. That's the that's the domain task. That's the domain question. You know, what is this temperature at this variable? What is, you know, what's going on here? The abstraction is are we using a bar graph to now visualize a quantitative data type? Um, are we going to use um, a box and whisker plot to show these different types of thresholds? And those are really great ways of getting insight about something. So you can say, well, actually, the, the best example I can give is something called Anscombe's Quartet. And this guy, really smart um, mathematician or statistician, um, actually in the middle of writing an article about him and about this very topic. Um, and so he finds a data set that he becomes very famous for, and the data sets all look almost exactly the same. The individual, so he has three points, three X's and three Y's. So X1, Y1, X2, Y2, X3, Y3. And not only do they look the same, the averages are the same, the medians are about the same, the standard deviations are within a couple points of each other. Um, the grouped medians, if you, if you median the X and Y for the, your subset, those are the same to each. If you average them, they're the same. So his question is, are they the same? And so for all intents and purposes, the statistical description of this data set, all of the uh, uh, things that we would use to measure something tell us that they are the same. They have the same mean. They have the same medians. They have the same outliers. Or well, no, no, I'm sorry, not outliers. They have the same standard deviations. And so you're like, oh well, yeah, of course they're the same. And then he plots them, and he does a very simple scatter plot for x. Each change in x, he has its y component. And one data set is completely linear. One is an n shape. One is a u shape. And one is all clustered to the side with an output like way up here, which is your outlier. And, and you couldn't see that from looking at it. You couldn't pick out the outlier. There's no way you could see the trends. And so if you're looking at something, you're saying, well, 
why would that curve matter? Well, maybe you're looking at temperature ranges and you say, well, there's a nice peak of temperature here to here. I, I didn't see that before. Maybe I shouldn't be seeing these tails. Maybe my, my, when my temperature is dying off, I'm doing something wrong in heating the greenhouse and I got to keep that stabilized temperature across the board. Um, and that's why you would want to do that. And, and, and not only do visualizations um, provide meaning for data, they're actually necessary if you're going to be doing statistical inferences on your data. So let's say um, I want to talk about visualizations more, but I feel I, I feel like what I'm about to say next is going to run on for like 30 minutes. So I'm going to I don't know. You tell you you tell me how much you want me to get into this. <laughs> but um, the, the, the shape of data is um, so let's say you're let's say you want to run a, 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 a t-test on your data okay you have a hypothesis that this data set the output of your data is statistically important it is not by random and the variable that you've changed has given you an output that is different than your base population okay you have set up an experiment you have changed something you have measured something you now have an output so your hypothesis would be that there's a change and the null hypothesis is that there's no change. A very simple standard stats 101. You're going to learn it your first year of college um, or high school. And so you run this and there's always a caveat, right? When you do these examples in your textbook, it always says that it's a normalized standard population. It's a normal standard random population. It's a normal standard random population. You just see that again and every, there's always that little caveat. By the way, this just happens to be a completely normal standardized random population. You know, like how convenient. That's amazing. That must be how all data exists in nature, right? And you always see the bell curve, right? And is it, they always love like, well, here's the bell curve and they hold it up and you're like, okay, great. It looks the same. Well, when you get into the real world and you get into real data, your data is not some normal standardized random population. You have sampling errors. You have done things wrong with your collection. You have um, you have skewed data sets. So it's skewed to the left. It's skewed to the right. When it's skewed, it means that there is a cluster of data on one side and a very extreme outlier to the other. Okay, And so whether it's actually the opposite of what you would think when people see it skewed to the left they see the data on the opposite of the side that they would expect it to be and, and so i would just go to wikipedia look it up look at the data skews it explains it very well um, but the point is that your normal shape is that you have these two uh curves on the end of your data and it comes up to the top we're talking about a histogram which i'll talk about more in just a second but it's a histogram of your data and it, it's a nice curve and it only works with quantitative data you cannot use qualitative data to do this. Um, so you're measuring something, you have a finite amount or you have a, a series and you can uh, summarize it correctly. Um, and, and, and that's normal. You have the bulk of your data is going to be within, uh, you know, 67% of your data is going to be around the middle and then a little bit less is going to be on the outside. So that first chunk is your standard deviation, right? So your mean is right in the middle where, where you would have uh, all the, the, the most of your data. Right? So if you had to make an inference about a data set and you would say, um, what's the most meaningful thing about the data set? Uh, you would say it's the mean, because if you didn't know anything else, the mean is going to tell you more about that data set. Right. And so that's why, you know, it's right down in the middle uh, the, with these types of visualization. And then the next set, as it pe uh, peels off, 
the outliers, which are your extreme values, are going to be two, three, four standard deviations out, and it just kind of goes out forever. So your first standard deviation, standard deviation. Have we talked about standard deviations? I keep using that term. Have we kind of gone into exactly what that is? I think we, I think we touched on it a little bit last time, but it might be good to define it just so people can follow. I, I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I want to make sure the audience does. Um, yeah, I, I want to make sure that this a, a, a people of a, a variety of backgrounds um, can can understand what I'm talking about. So, a standard deviation is a way of normalizing a metric on data that is otherwise not normalized, and so that you can say um, you can take multiple data sets and say one standard deviation, and it means the same exact thing for each. Uh, 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 each data set, and it is the point of how far you're measuring it from the mean and the central point. And whenever we talk about data as with statistical uh, sense, we're always talking about points from the mean and, and how far we are from them and or uh, uh, what the, where the mean is falling. The, it's always about the mean. Um, it's sort, that's sort of the baseline for the data set that you're working with. So you have like, you know where you're looking for most of your data to fall in, and then, then you can kind of see when you have stuff that falls outside of that range, basically. Exactly. And so, and that's that perfect shape. Okay. And, and, and so your tails match, they're symmetrical. And this is, this is important. Um, so what will happen is uh, you will get a data set and it'll be, now I've, I've gone through that lengthy definition to explain to you normal. So now it'll be very easy to understand abnormal. Now take that mean and just shift it all the way to one side. So now where you would normally have your, you know, that third standard deviation, right? You have that outlier. Well, that's where like the bulk of all your data is, right? And then your standard deviations are like much closer together. And then your tail that should have been spread out on both sides is, is now wide into one side. And so you have a skewed data set. So if you run a, a standard uh, t-test, it's not going to work. You're going to get a flawed result uh, because you haven't normalized your data. Um, so you can't assume standard normalized um, tests for data sets that are not normal or what we would say is normal. Okay. Um, and so what you have to do is you have to shift your data and transform it. And the thing that burns me up is that whenever we try to do this in the real world, um, there's a fancy CEO who uh, doesn't understand what we're talking about. And they're, they're saying, well, you're misleading. If you transform your data, you're manipulating it. Well, I, we started manipulating the data as soon as we pulled it out of the database and started cleaning it. So we've been manipulating it from, from the beginning. We were manipulating it even when we started capturing, to be fair. Right. I, we've been <laughs> manipulating the data since day one. So it's first off, uh, doing this type of shift, all right, this transformation is not data manipulation. You're not changing the numbers. You're Think of it like a, a matrix or like a, kind of an eigenvector in a matrix where you have this really very uh, powerful mathematical property and you can apply it to your data set and you are sliding it around and the numbers will come out correct provided that you're using a standardized way of doing this transformation. And so you can use an exponent or you can use the root of something and apply this to your data set. And, and then what you'll see is as you apply this, and there's ways of like looking at data in more meaningful ways with like logarithmic values. But what you'll see is that when you transform it correctly, that 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 shift that's all on one side will push very neatly into the center. Okay, and then you'll get that nice normal bell curve. Uh, once you have that, then you can take that data set and analyze it. And you can say, I'm treating it like a normalized data set with a data transformation. And as long as that you're using a standard transform method, 
that has been a you know sanctioned by people who study this stuff and have been doing it since like the nineteen you know thirties or whatever. Um, that there's there's no problem with that. You can't just pick any random way of transforming it and say, well, I divided everything by two because that that looked good to me. That's not what I'm talking about. And that's the, what people get hung up on. They're like, oh, well, you're taking my values and you're multiplying them, and that's not the real thing. Well, no. If you're trying to figure out your data, you you have to follow the the, the process to do so. So that's what visualization to your microscope on your data, basically, right? Like exactly, and then that's why you have to know your you have to know the shape of your data. And when 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 I say the shape of your data, I'm specifically talking about this type of histogram and this distribution. Um, once you know what type of data set you're working with, whether it's skewed, whether it's normal, whether it's bimodal, bimodal, you have two humps that come together in the middle. It can be skewed bimodal. Like you now know what tool set you're going to open to then deal with that data. So, and it's never going to be normal. Most times it's not because your sample size will probably be too small. And, and that's where like, you know, we talked about sample size last time. And a lot of times you're working with sample sets that are not really sufficient to do larger analysis. So you probably need to transform it in some way to be able to run some, some um, the correct uh, calculations on it. Now, uh, what you can do though, is if you're really not sure what kind of uh, output you're getting, you can continue collecting data and then plot it in a histogram when you have like uh, uh, 10 times as much data if you have the capacity to do so. And you can see that's giving you a different picture. Now, even if you, again, the central li limit theorem tells us that when we collect a unlimited number of samples, we will always get a bell-shaped curve, but we don't have always the capacity to collect an unlimited number of samples. Um, so that's why we transform. And that is like kind of the same way of saying, mm, I, I, I'm going to assume that I've sampled this an unlimited number of times. And now I'm kind of pushing in those extra outliers that I'm not observing. And no matter how much I've tested, I know they're not there, but they eventually will get there. If I did this a hundred trillion times, I'm sure I would get some, some of these outliers. You know, it's just, that's how randomness works. Um, and so that's why actually histograms if you're not sure um, what's a good visualization to start with, you know, instead of just throwing out a bar chart or a, a line graph or something simple that that Excel can run for you, learning how to do a histogram um, with, with whatever software you have available uh, is really valuable um, because that's going to show you that that overall shape. And a histogram is not a bar chart, and and people make the mistake of treating histograms like bar charts. Uh, and so what a histogram does is it creates a bin, okay, for your quantitative variable. And you're going to select a range for that bin. And then you're counting how many times that item fell into that bin in that category. Okay. And, and that's obviously different than a bar chart, which you can have various ways of kind of getting that aggregated value. Um, but what's neat about the histograms is that the, the size of your bin is absolutely critical to how your data takes shape. But there's really not a standardized way of binning data. There's no rule. It doesn't say like if people, you can argue with that and say, well, this article says that the rule of thumb needs to be, that's fine. Maybe that maybe for that data set that works really well, you're gonna find data sets where it doesn't work very well. So you have to play with your bin sizes. And it's a little bit more of a, it's kind of like medicine. It's more of a, 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 a art than a science sometimes. Like we you find these doctors that are really good, but sometimes they have to the, kind of go by what they feel is right for their patient. It's the same thing in a situation like this. You got to kind of have to have enough experience with this stuff to feel out 
what's the right bin size? I think a good rule of thumb, though, I will always say is if you're seeing gaps in your data, your bins are too small. You really, you shouldn't be seeing gaps. Your bins should be big enough to cover the thing so you can get a shape. If your bins are so big that there's no shape, you probably need a ton more data. And so those are kind of good places to start off of. Or if you have a ton of data and you have no shape, something else is wrong, something else is off. You, you should have a shape after that point. Um, or if you have huge gaps in data, you know, like you really with a quantitative variable, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have these like giant gaps in a bin. You should have something overlapping enough, even if you're doing like speed, like a zero is a bin, right? There's can be zero speeds. Now you can't have negative. Well, I guess you could have negative speeds if you're doing forward trajectory and then somebody stops and goes backwards. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on how you look at it. But like if it with temperature data, you're never going to have a gap. Like you don't, temperature doesn't stop existing. Right? And so those are like that that attribute that you have to have to think about. Well, maybe you didn't collect data in that bin. That's fine, um, but the, it can't not exist. Right. And so that's how you have to have like this really nice shape uh, to work off of. And so what actually what, what I'm going to do uh, is in my next video, I'm going to do histograms. I'm going to plot them with Seaborn because it's super easy. Like a trained uh, orangutan could do this um, like like four lines of code. And I'm not going to it's nothing fancy. Um, but if you're not like what, what I want to do is show you a couple uh, different data sets where this kind of uh, observation really matters. And it's more about like kind of the, the data set. And then also, I mean, if you can download something free on the Internet <laughs> and spin it up, you could do this with your own data, too. And, and then and so you'll see the examples of how we've kind of cleaned some segments out of it. Um, and, and you'll kind of get a, a sense for how like really simple the, that the technology has made it. And again, I will caution that. Uh, when you have a simple tool that has made the job so mindless, like you can't just pour all of yourself into that like, one output and be like, oh, well, that's the data. The tool did it for me. So there's other things that you need to do with it. So it's a it's a catch-22. It's nice that it's simple, but it definitely causes problems if that's all you're relying on. Um, so I'll actually be showing, making a couple videos about different ways of doing a histogram. So if you don't not sure of the output, especially because you know those are, these are like these black box packages. Unless you're going to sit there and read the GitHub uh, that they have posted and look through every line of code to see how they're doing their math, um, it's probably worthwhile of just knowing another way of doing it <laughs> than just checking your data <laughs> somewhere else. So you know that's kind of like the big why, right? And so actually, I have a. Um, a really cool story. How much time left do we have in this segment? Because I, I want to get through this whole story. We've got about about seven minutes left. Okay, I am going to save this for the next uh, after the break, and I'm going to get my book on the break here. And then what I'm going to finish up with is uh, well, let's talk about like with uh, I want to talk about uh, oh um, the the data shape. Um, we use bins for a very specific reason. I did not mention this, and I'm glad I have it uh, jotted down here. Uh, bins, actually, the, the practice of putting data into these bins remove the observation bias uh, that I was talking about earlier. So in that randomization kind of uh, example that I gave you. So when we're looking at our data and we're trying to group it in our mind, um, we will put things in the wrong buckets. Numbers are very hard for us to visually process uh, unless, you know, there's some really smart people that do it very well. But for the vast majority of us, 
I get trouble with just looking at strings of numbers and just expecting to get meaning from that. Actually, the best example is when you have like a million and a billion and they, you didn't add commas. Okay. Like if you can quickly look at that. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't even register. (laughs) I are like, what am I looking at here? It's like somebody gives me a phone number and there's no dashes. Like I don't call that person. Like you need to put the dashes in. (laughs) Well, that's, and that's, you know, that is why part of why the, we see phone numbers that are, you know, with the parentheses around the area code and the dash for the right. a, stuff. So you can separate that mentally, visually, easily. Right. Uh, that was the same problem. problem I ran into with, you know, with the just the number charts on the on the web page. It was like there's just too much data. I could like, you know, I'm like trying to go through it. I'm like, what does this mean? Uh, this is good. I got to chart this so I can like have some kind of clue what what's actually going on here. What's changed? Yeah. Yeah, and that's why. Those bins, the, 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 and again, I just keep talking like somebody listening to this would be like, this guy in his bins, what's up with this? <laughs> it's, it's such a, a fundamental tool that people misuse, people fail to use. You know, it's something that I always give someone. If I'm doing an analysis, like a report uh, for them, and I'm looking through the data, the first page is going to show a histogram of some of the variables that they've asked me to measure. And typically, you know, it's a situation where they're like, Great. Okay. Anyway, let me see what I asked for. And they don't ever take the time to look at what their data is actually telling them. And I think what's really funny about this is I had a, I had a, a someone come to me for an observation, an operational uh, uh, observation, and their data was skewed to one side. And they said, "Well, how do we get it? How do how do we predict from this?" I was like, "You can't. Like, it just does. It's never going to work with this data. Like, you just you can't use it. I'm sorry. That really sucks." <laughs> Very frustrating for someone who like wants to make some meaning out of that data. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you could skew, you could transform it, but you're not making predictions from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're uh, coming up on the break here in about a minute. Uh, is there anything else you want to wrap up on this section before we uh, go off to the break? And no, I think that we'll come back with uh, Eigen uh, Ingaz Semmelweis, and we'll talk about how uh, visualizations could have saved hundreds of lives and why it is so absolutely critical to visualize your data. Yeah, and I know you shared that story with me before, and I found that really interesting, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to hearing you uh, go into that a little bit more, because I just I saw a link and I read an article, but I, I know uh, you'll have a great spin on that. <laughs> but, uh, we're listening to, you're listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, TalkStream Live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. This is also released later on in podcast form. It's called Comrades and Farms. You can get it on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google, Radio Public. Uh, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of platforms. Anyway, if you want to listen to this in audio format, you can. Uh, with that, we're going to roll out to the break, and we'll see you guys on the other side of the break. Thanks for listening to Truth Frequency Radio.
to Comrades in Farms here on True Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, is let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. He's sharing some interesting data science stuff with us, a little bit about data shape and data visualization, if I could say it. And uh, before the break, we were talking about all sorts of stuff around uh, data visualization and data shape and some different interesting comparisons that Brian shared with us. And uh, Brian, uh, welcome back. And uh, I know you have some new information to share with us, so uh, why don't you just take it away? All right. Well, first, I wanted to, uh, I, I got the book that I was talking about. I highly recommend it if you're into this stuff. You can pick it up for about $30 on Amazon. And it's called The Visual Display of Quantitative Information. And it is by Howard uh, Tuft. And while that sounds like a book you, you'll never want to read, I want to show you a couple snippets from it and try to convince people, maybe a few people to run out and grab it. Maybe pirate it off of uh, some unknown source. Uh, but the first example, actually, what, what I wanted to show you was the um, Anscom's Quartet. So this is the visualization that I was talking about. So there you have the four really uh, similar looking uh, data sets, but uh, when you visualize them, you're seeing very different characteristics about that data. So that's one really important reason to visualize data. It's also a utilitarian reason. So, so there's a, an example of some train schedules in Paris uh, that was written. Now this was before these visualizations were created, before th there was computerized software to do it. So there wasn't a lot of standards. Uh, visualizations took a long time to create and, and everyone had their own spin on it. And I think at first you take a look at something like this and you're kind of like, what is the, could that pos how could that possibly be useful? Well, it's really interesting because these lines are the train time, are the trains. Um, and each one of these uh, horizontal lines are the train station. And then these lines running up and down are the time. So if you wanted to figure out when a train was going to be hitting your station, you would look for your train line and just run your finger across until you saw the cross mark. And then when you just turn it and, and went into a different direction, you'd get the time that was associated with it. And what they found was uh, they were giving people uh, uh, time, ske time schedules uh, with these long cards. And it was very hard to find that, but this very simple, seemingly nonsensical uh, uh, graph actually is giving people more uh, uh, information. And actually, I'll give you one other uh, uh, interesting example here of kind of how visualization can be important. Um, so I have the, I had it, I just lost it with my finger here. Excuse me one second. So like, like when you're about to ingest data, the way that it's presented to you will make the difference between how you feel and think about that data. And that's when we talk about like the biases with data types and how like we really shouldn't be putting our own kind of emotional spin on the data. And so I have like kind of some of the propaganda ones here. I call them like propaganda. Um, yeah, like here's here's an interesting one where the, the point that they're trying to make in this is not really super important. But like right away when you look at this data, you can see the emphasis on a very specific part of that uh, visualization. And so like you're now trying to understand it and a part has already been emphasized for you. So you're going to focus on that emphasis. And whether you're talking about color, the use of color is really important about how you feel about things. Um, whether you're talking about a specific data shape or a type of, of, of um, pattern that you use that can make people feel anxious or calm. So like a good rule of thumb is like if I'm creating a more complicated dashboard for somebody and uh, I will use negative space 
to kind of draw their eye into an area. I like to use very neutral tones and then emphasize things with very uh, uh, contrasting uh, 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 colors, not necessarily bright. So like a really effective way of doing a heat map is just like no color to a darker gray. And so you may want to highlight certain areas, but if you're trying to get somebody to read an entire heat map and look at kind of the distribution, typically when you see a heat map, you see these like really bright red zones. And, and while you're supposed to be focusing on that, sometimes the, the, the point could be to the areas that are not hot. And so you could invert these, but that's really not intuitive, right? So like the darker, more concentration is the higher value that you should be getting. So there are subtle ways that you can use color. And that's one one very light example. Uh, and there's times that I actually was trying to give people, um, I'm sorry, I was trying to give somebody a report about late data uh, that they were submitting. So I used nothing but yellows and reds. So as soon as you, it was just a very aggressive report, and as soon as you opened it up, it was you knew it was bad news. It was just red everywhere because that's what we were focusing on. Or you know, if I'm trying to convince somebody, I'll use more calming blues, more neutral blues. And then there's also colorblind people that you need to uh, take into account. So if you're portraying data that has a lot of, of uh, access to it, you should be using tones that are more um, friendly to people that can see different color spectrums because it'll be meaningful to them when they can kind of get that point across. And so, I mean, a lot of it might, you might just look at me and be like, well, that's a lot of fluff. That's great. You know, you don't need to make your visualizations pretty. I disagree. I think presentation is is everything sometimes. Um, and what would you say if I told you that the difference between a successful visualization and a poorly executed one could mean the 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 difference of hundreds of lives? Um, you may feel like that's an exaggeration, but that actually happened. And that's where we're going to jump into uh, Inga's uh, Samuelis, who is a Hungarian who was a Hungarian physician. And I think it was probably, well, his report was published in 1940, 1846 or 1847. And I think it took him about 14 or 15 years to produce his report. So that gives you about the time frame that we're talking about. Um, but what was happening is, what's that? Incredible amount of work. Oh, yeah. There's, well, he also held off on uh, uh, displaying his uh, reports, uh, which I will kind of hit on toward the end. And that was kind of one of his downfalls. And, and a, a minor point that I'll make, when you have a, a meaningful observation, you're like kind of, uh, you're obligated to release that to people. And people who don't, um, I think, are kind of making uh, an ethical mistake. Uh, and that's kind of what he did. He was took too long to validate and test his results uh, when he could have been putting it out there sooner. And it also gives people less time to create really firm arguments. So there's a, there's a whole, there's a lot that has to do with Semmelweis. So let's just, let's dive right in. So he was a physician that worked on uh, a couple of different wards of a hospital. And um, he was, uh, there was uh, the maternity ward um, had a bed fever rate. Um, and so what they would observe uh, over given times is there was peaks and valleys to the number of deaths of uh, uh, newborn, uh, not newborns, but the mothers, uh, which is interesting. Uh, there's obviously infant uh, death rates and stuff like that. But what um, what was curious is that, that they, they would have these relatively high fatality rates for um, women uh, that had just given birth and they, they called it bed fever. And so for a long time, this was just kind of a known condition that could occur and it was accepted as a medical practice. That if you give birth, you might get bed fever and you might die. 
and that's just life and you just got to live with it okay and so uh during an autopsy that uh Semmelweis was performing uh either it was himself or his assistant got stuck with the scalpel and he noticed that uh the the fever that was produced from that scalpel stick was the exact same characteristics of bed fever uh the difference being that the the, the individual did not die um and and so uh Semmelweis started to capture data on this and that's kind of the first big point of any kind of experiment that you do you have a thought so he said well something is going on with what occurred in the autopsy room and the same thing is happening here in the maternity ward so he started following doctors around watching what they did actually he started plotting a time series of data of their of what was occurring at different time points and this is again why time series data is so important too so if you if you're looking at like things over time like even the most beginning rudimentary uh, exploration of data capture is with a time series typically um sorry no uh <laughs> check out the tutorial <laughs> um so he noticed that doctors were going to uh first in the morning they would perform autopsies and they would have like teaching sessions and stuff like that in these big auditoriums where they were doing the autopsies. And then in the afternoon, uh, they were performing, uh, uh, they were, uh, they were giving, they were, uh, what, what is the term for it? Giving, Your helping with, or whatever. Yeah, well, no, they were, they were actually like, you know, getting the babies out. <laughs> What's the term that I'm looking for? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> they were performing deliveries. I was just, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had a mental block there. So they're performing deliveries in the afternoon. And so uh, what he would notice is that there was uh, what they would, they would literally wipe their hands on their aprons uh, from giving, uh, doing an autopsy with no gloves or any, of any type, and then go directly into the delivery area. Uh, and so his assumption was that there was contamination uh, from the deceased uh, bodies and this was before i think microscopic germs and stuff were really an accepted uh, scientific technology or a scientific advancement and so he understood that there was a connection that was being made he really didn't have the means or the know-how to prove it so he started setting up small experiments uh so what he did was uh first he started following uh the doctors around um and he made them wash their hands in a lime uh, solution that very much uh, a mimicked chlorine um i forget exactly what he used but it was enough to kill any germs and and type of uh pathogens that were within the blood as you would expect or at least and, rinse off right or at least <laughs> washing them off you know and this this notion of sanitation like just wasn't in existence and then also, like, you have to understand, these were doctors. Um, and being a doctor at this time was very different than being a doctor today. Uh, the notion that you would tell a doctor what to do was kind of unheard of, unless you were an extremely prominent doctor. You know, you wouldn't just go around criticizing your peers. So this was not being well received from day one. And the fact that a doctor would, you're basically accusing them of doing harm, you know, they're outright rejecting. So. Like his whole kind of setup around this wasn't very good. Um, and so these are lessons that you can kind of learn from. And so he had them wash their hands in this, this solution. Um, and the bed rates, uh, the bed fever rates uh, dropped uh, to almost nothing. And he continued uh, to enforce this on the ward. And they went to zero. 
and they maintained at zero for a very uh, lengthy amount of time. And so he started discussing his results with his colleagues, and, and they took a lot of time to formulate the argument. So like major point number one is if you have findings and they are really significant, before you start releasing them to people, um, I think that you know you do your due diligence, but you have to take a leap of faith. There's a certain point where if you're like 80% sure of what you're finding, that, there's a reason that you have peer reviews, like that are, we talked about problems with the peer review process, but there's a reason why you publish your results in a, in a manner that is universally accepted and that people can then test on their own. And so if he had done that kind of thing, right? Right, get it out in the open. But what he kind of did was he took segments of his kind of analysis and didn't give anyone really the full picture. Uh, and so they were able to really break holes into a lot of the arguments that he was trying to make. And it was not, by the time that he published it, it was already an unpopular opinion. So like th that was major strike one. So if you have important data, get it out there. Put your name on it. Be, uh, 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 be, um, um, uh, um, be willing to, yeah, be willing to make, uh, be wrong. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. But 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 don't don't wait. Uh, the second thing that he did was um, when he did his uh, big kind of grandiose publication of this, he used a data table. And from our previous discussion, we just talked about why data tables are inherently useless when you're trying to, to look at this quantitative data over periods of time. And so what someone did was they took uh, uh, his data and they plotted it on a very simple graph. And the graph was like, you know, like all these uh, bed fever rates. And then they cross-sectioned it with the Lyme solution and it went straight down. And they argue it's it's kind of known that had he done taking the time to do something like that or if, if visualizations were more of a, an accepted practice at the time, it would have been clear there was an implication here that it, but, but but people didn't see it in the in the data. They couldn't see it in the data. So it was outright rejected. And even though, so then they stopped washing hands and the bed favor rate went right back up. And, and, and over the period of like 14 years that he was trying to like get this out, they were on and off like doing his practice. And then ultimately, um, you know, he, he goes in, he starts criticizing um, his audience. And that is mistake number three. Um, and so then when the people who, who didn't believe him, instead of trying to make further efforts to convince his point, he was at that point embarrassed and he, he really just uh, dug himself a hole, attacked his critics, and then he became kind of lost all credibility. And so like these, these are like three really critical lessons to take away from it. But I think one of the more, more important things is, you know, his chosen method of presentation was wrong for the audience. So when you have, um, uh, uh, you have to think about who's gonna be ingesting your information and you should be tailoring your presentation to a way that is a, a, a receptible, uh, that they can be receptible to the data incoming. So what you would give a high level executive is not the same thing that you would give an engineer. Um, those are two very different audiences. Um, and so your visualizations, the colors, the tone, the, cho the type of visualization, all of these things play such an, a, a dramatic uh, uh, difference. So like, you know, if you're using a chart type that people can't understand, I think a common type that 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 I use a lot uh, are bullet charts. And what I'll do is I'll attach either a sheet that explains what a bullet chart is, or I'll make a visualization overlay so you can click on it and it will bring up an explanation of exactly what each point of time is. Is so that way 
one, people are not going to be ashamed of looking at the visualization um, and seemingly be sound like they're stupid. So no one's going to sit in a room with high-level individuals and admit that they don't understand something. Very few people will. So rather than saying, well, I don't understand what this bar chart is, they'll say, well, your data's wrong, or I don't agree with this output, or they'll do something else to mask the fact that they don't really get what's going on. So if you can bridge that gap for them and bring them up to speed very quickly, um, they'll be more receptive to then hearing that information. So that's that's another way of kind of dealing with that. And then, you know, the other really big thing I think that, that you have to do is choose, um, like less is more, okay, always, pretty much always less is more, especially when it comes to data visualization. So if you're trying to do something that's summarizing a, a tremendous amount of effort, probably the simpler you can make it, because it should be like, what's the one point that I should be taking from this visualization? Am I Should I be asking questions after I see this, or should I be getting answers? And if you should be asking questions, then your data should be complicated enough to drive the discrepancy to the individual, right? I know that's one of the problems I have even with trying to explain regenerative agriculture or nutrition and how important that is to people is to try and like, like I know so much information about that, to try and drive that down to a, a small enough point to make to somebody that just to get their mind open enough that they'll look into it on their own they'll, or that they'll get a piece of it and go, hmm, maybe there's something to that. That was, that's been one of my biggest challenges. How do you present that to people? And the same kind of thing, you know, like you have a tremendous amount of data. You want to get somebody who doesn't understand anything about that to have some understanding of it so they can like, do their own research or learn more about it or at least be open to it. You know, and, and I think like infographics are, are really popular uh, right now because people can really creative artistic people put these these things together. But I actually disagree with infographics kind of as a method of kind of giving information. They're a little too heavy handed sometimes. So I think that what you need to do is not tell people like it's the it's the opposite of the three t's you tell somebody what you're going to tell them you tell them and then you tell them what you told them like that's great as kind of like a present a lecture tool but you're not lecturing people and as soon as you start lecturing people with data um they're typically turned off to it and so what you yeah you you gotta have you gotta show them the door they have to walk through the door and so if you're if you're creating enough of a gap for them to ask more questions, so like a good uh, example would be like, well, you know, like uh, you're show, showing trends and you see a drop. Well, why did it drop? Well, that's a great question. Why did it drop? And so then you did a good job with your visualization. You showed the dip, you know, and, and, and so that's where you and again, you can't get into the causation because you don't know the causation or maybe you do. Maybe you have an experiment that you set up and you very firmly know the reason why. But then that person is primed for the information. Or, or another good uh, thing is like, you know, if you're trying to emphasize a point that has um, multiple pieces of information, uh, you can inadvertently create these visualizations that are too complicated. Uh, so like, like uh, I'll use a bullet chart again, you know, bullet chart is going to have multiple things that you can measure. So typically when you're setting it up, you'll have like the bar at the end is your cap. Like let's say you're doing financial data. The bar is your total expense. And then a bar coming up to it is your recovery of the expense. And then there's another sh shaded region, which is like kind of your absolute minimal recovery necessary in order to, to like function. And so then you have three critical pieces of information. Is my, my bar past my critical point? Have I met my critical point yet? And have I recovered or have I surpassed my recovery? And so then you, you've then 
bucketed that all into a nice, neat single row, and then people get the whole message right right away. But if you take um, a visualization that's not meant to be that complicated, and you start adding details and attributes to it in ways that it's not supposed to handle it. So like, let's say you take a correlation, and you start moving a data point around on a matrix, and it's not intuitive. So like one of the things that I find hard with data that's correlated is if you slice it, you really can't take a slice of the correlation and, and, and still have the same impact because your left to right value and your top to bottom value have a meaning. The further left to right has a value that it's being quantified and top to bottom says the same thing. And so when you're slicing data, you're, you're typically taking that zero away and you're taking the rest of your cluster that, that you've been kind of working with. And so what I'll see sometimes is people will take these small clusters and then try to describe that using the same visualization, but you've already kind of lost the, the point of what that graph was meant to do. So not so that you like sometimes, you know, keep it simple, stupid. There's no reason why you have to use these really advanced graph types to 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 explain simple content. And if you follow a lot of the, the the content that I'll be putting out, you'll see that it's meat and potatoes. It's 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 really simple stuff. I, I typically stay away from pie graphs. I think I just hate them. It just pie charts are mostly useless, uh, with the, the exception of like some rare reasons why you would need to use them. But if people. You broke up for a second there, but go ahead. Uh, I said so. So I was just saying, like pie graphs are typically not a really good, uh, useful chart to use. There's typically better way to kind of describe that relationship, or um, people will use data graphs the wrong way. So like sometimes when you get into the, the the visualization suite and a lot of the tools that 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 come with these types of software, you know they'll have like um, actually a, a great example of this is the Excel um, tool that's like the forecaster. And and I see people try to use it, and then they're using it all wrong. Like, don't use the Excel forecaster tool. It's not going to be helpful. Um, like, first off, you can see the trend without the forecaster. There's no reason to ask Excel to extend kind of a line on a linear scale. What I'll see people do is get a, a line graph going along with a single variable that they're they're kind of looking at at a time. And so they'll have like a, a, a dimension that's discrete in a dimension that's that's continual and then they'll try to project with this kind of all you're doing is taking that other data and then just averaging it out but that's not how you forecast you forecast by taking multiple types of complex data and then trying to make sense of it and so i think these some of these tools are really misleading or like some of the tools are like a candlestick chart unless you're doing like stock analysis Probably not a useful tool. You probably don't need to get into a candlestick chart, you know. Um, and so there are things that you shouldn't even be wasting your time with when you're doing a lot of these uh, uh, visualization types. But 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 again, to drive it back home, um, had Semmelweis done this correctly, he probably would have been successful. And it took almost I forget a hundred years for his like for this to be uh, adapted fully. But probably not a hundred years, but but it took longer than it should have, and well after he already was uh, in I think after his death. So even after he was kind of driven out of his medical society, you know, like this whole thing kind of ruined him. So um, you know, uh, it, it's it's an important kind of point to 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 make. Um, so. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's the story of Semmelweis and why you should visualize your data. Very interesting, and uh, it's 
kind of sad that that many lives had to be lost just because he wasn't able to represent that data correctly. Also, it seems like, you know, when you when you start trying an experiment and you see this like death rate drop right off, right, and then you stop the experiment and the death rate comes back up, that seems so intuitive. Like, it makes me how they makes me wonder how they missed that. Even the people that like didn't didn't understand, you know, didn't follow them basically, didn't get it. Well, I mean, like you know, that's if you're not ca- if you're not if you're not actively looking for that data. And you're not actively looking at the trends, then you'll miss it. And so that's why, like capturing, continuing to capture data carefully is important, and continuing to to show your data over time to see how the trends are going. That's why, like continual visualization. So if you're looking at kind of these these longer measures, if you're trying to, uh, maybe maybe you're not even just looking for trends. Maybe you just want to see what the what is what is happening with your data, but nothing else. Um, when there is a trend, it'll be so immediately obvious to you. And so when you're trying to set things up and track uh, over time, you, you you have to set them up in a way that you can reproduce your visualizations and so that you're getting a consistent output again and again. And so then you can see those different swings and you'll get a much better sense of whatever variables you're changing are doing to your data. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting stuff, and that story about him is is fascinating. And uh, I, I really like that. <laughs> it makes me want to check that book out myself with all those visualizations. And I find it really interesting, uh, to, you know, just to think about doing that sort of stuff before we had the technology of computers to be able to create that sort of data easily in a visual form. It's, it was a lot more work, you know. Like, yeah, and I think the the tools today they don't they don't allow you as much flexibility and creativity as as was out there, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> you know, we're kind of boxed into certain visualization types, whether we like it or not. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I know uh, when I was in high school, I took uh, AutoCAD, and I also took architectural drawing, and the difference to go from architectural drawing to AutoCAD was. It was amazing time-wise what you could accomplish, but also it was restrictive in some of the tools at the time. You know, now new AutoCAD stuff that's out now is pretty impressive, but you know, big difference in style and uh, way of handling and processing things. But uh, we're rolling up on the break here, so I guess we'll uh, we'll roll out to the break and we'll come back. And uh, I'm sure you'll have some more interesting information to share with us. <laughs> Right, so you are listening to Comrades in Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, TalkStream Live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. We will catch you guys on the other side of the break.
Hello, hello. Welcome back to Comrades in Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Of course, you can also listen to this in podcast form, about a month lagging, uh, YouTube and Truth Frequency Radio stream. That's Comrades in Farms on Spotify and a whole bunch of other podcasts. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco, and we're talking about data science. We talked about visualization. And Brian shared a really interesting story with us about a doctor. And uh, now in the next section, uh, we're going to go into some other interesting stuff. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks uh, for having me on. You haven't booed me out yet, so uh, I'm, I'm taking your liking to content. So uh, what do you want to talk about next? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, you're the one with all the data information. I think uh, <laughs> I think it would be interesting to uh, to look at how uh, I can kind of make data a little more uh, reliable. Mm. There to do that. Yeah, you know, I mean, we were talking before about like kind of the continuous flow of data um, and, and, and watching uh, trends over time. And usually, unless you're doing a continuously, uh, unless you have software that's continuously plotting something for you, most of the time you'll be extracting your data set and you'll be running a cleaning method on it and then you'll be uh, doing a visualization from that. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's a very common way of, of doing it. There's tools that can be used to automate it, but maybe if you're starting out and you're just working off of you know, some sort of uh, uh, database, uh, uh, assuming that like you're using a free tool like RIADB or, or something like that, you're probably not spinning up a, you know, a $10,000 license of Oracle for your greenhouse. But if you are, you know, kudos. <laughs> not anytime soon, I don't think. <laughs> right. so you're probably, you know, you got to do a dump, Dave dump, do a query, do something in SQL, and you're going to be putting it into some type of either you're doing the cleaning in SQL or you're doing the cleaning outside of it. Then you're grabbing something to visualize it. Um, well, all of what you're doing needs to be reproducible, uh, not only for the sake of your own sanity so that, that you're always producing the same visualization the same way. Uh, but if you actually are tweaking things, right, if you are improving growth rates or if you're doing something that is um, um, making a meaningful impact to your uh, to your data. Uh, the reproducibility is necessary for testing because then you would need to set up tests where you remove the variable and you compare it and you, you got to do a lot of testing if you're trying to, even if you're, you're doing something major, you're going to produce a white paper from it or something like that. You know, you've got to be able to, to give other people the means in which to also reproduce your work and then be able to say if it was valid or not. Um, so I want to talk about steps for our reproducibility um, because I don't think that they're very people don't do them enough and I'm not talking about writing a SQL script and then running that one SQL script a hundred times um, for your reproducibility that's part of it but there are more methods about it so like first off um, before we even get into the data abstraction uh, you have to think about uh, record keeping um, and how absolutely critical it is um, and so even though you're capturing a lot of data, uh, the way that you've uh, set up results to be captured um, need to be tracked meticulously. Uh, and so if you're doing temperature probes, um, the locations of the probes should be written down. Um, if you start probes and they're not auto capturing right away and they're affecting some other part of the system, um, you should be noting the times that you've turned them on. If you turn them on in a sequence, you know, I don't know if that makes a difference, I don't write it down. Maybe you always start with one probe first, and maybe if you don't start with that probe next time, you might get a different temperature output. Um, these are just things that I would think that could affect the data in some way. So, so, so those are the things that not only do you need to be um, 
able to record, there's a method of re record keeping that's necessary to kind of um, put this into. It's not just an open notebook, uh, nor should it be, uh, because you have to be able to go back to certain slices of that notebook very easily. So one of the things that I recommend whenever we're doing um, the beginning of a data project is I will usually dedicate a small notebook to the data set that I'm going to start working with. And I like um, uh, kind of this indexing process of my note keeping. So I'll take the first part of a notebook and I will take like, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 pages and they're going to be completely blank. And then the rest of the notebook, whether I use it all or not, is dedicated to the notes. And so then what I'll do is I'll index keywords that I'll highlight on the, on the page of that notebook and that highlighted term will go into the index. And so it's like you could also be typing out records, but I typically find is um, when you're doing work, um, especially if you're doing work on a computer, you're typically not having a no another like Word document open. Usually if you have multiple screens, they're all kind of dedicated to your task. And there's also the psychology of writing things down. Um, where you write something down, um, the actual location of the, anat or the, the anatomy of your brain is wired to remember that better than if you had typed something out. And the act of, of the spatial referencing that goes along with handwriting um, is one of the reasons why uh, handwriting is a more effective tool for note-taking than in any other form. Uh, and this is hard science. You can dispute it if you want. There's great papers written about it. And actually, the combination of written and typed notes is actually the best. Uh, because not only are you doing the spatial referencing with your notes, and when you type it out, you're then summarizing what you've already kind of ingested. So there's a kind of two steps to it, but that I won't kind of spin off on. But what the, what you should be doing is thinking about your notes in, in kind of chunks and segments of kind of your preparation steps uh, than this physical task that you're doing. I'll give you a funny example. Okay, so um, I'm a data guy, uh, if you haven't noticed. And <laughs> I was kind of bored when COVID started. So I got into pickling. And I just, I don't know, I don't know why I was obsessing on it so much, but I started pickling different things and I was using different ratios and I made a batch of sour pickles that were like out of this world, amazing. And I never wrote down what I did and I cannot figure out how to do it again, you know, and it's just something stupid like that. I was, I was doing it for fun. I wasn't doing it to write it out, but I should have, I should have treated it like anything else and made sure all of my, my, for, my, my recipes were precise and but that's what's going to happen is is that's a stupid example unless you really love pickles i guess um and it, well, i've done that with recipe stuff before too and like you know just didn't write down the exact formula i was like man how do i reproduce that again like yeah right it's interesting, it's interesting you think make that point about uh, the note taking being so valuable because I, I find that when i write something down in a notebook like i keep log books here from my amateur radio stuff and instead of typing them in a computer, because that's just a pain to do on the radio, and also if power goes out, I can still look at my log and like see who I talk to and like look up a call sign and that kind of stuff. I found that I'm able to remember that much better than something I log into the computer. And for a while with the greenhouse, I was actually taking uh, paper note logs in conjunction with the data collection. And after a point, I actually created a, a, a separate column in the database and so when I made changes to sensors or any of that kind of stuff, just so I could correspond it to exactly when that happened, I'd put a commentary in there. But I find I don't remember that as well as I do when I write something down. So it's interesting to make that point about that. Well, you know, also with the volume that you can type something, it's, it's, it makes the, 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 what you're writing out less meaningful. 
uh, or I'm sorry, what you're typing out less meaningful because there's just a, such a great uh, uh, capacity to have so much of your thought out very, very quickly. That doesn't happen when you write something. You know, you have to think about how much space is going to be taken up by your words, whether you're, you're consciously doing it or not. You know, it, it does play a really big role. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, the recipe example is the best one. So you should be setting up experiments like a recipe. And if you, like, if you're able to um, give somebody the ingredients, the methods, and then what the actual output was will be uh, not needed. You won't need to record the output if you're able to re reproduce the results. Now, you should record the output. Um, but if you are being really good at your documentation, um, that output will be uh, uniform all the time. That was only point one. I have like 10 more points here. <laughs> I don't know that we'll get through all of them. Um, okay, so the next major point whenever you're trying to create um, uh, reproducible results is to avoid the manual data manipulation step. Anything that you can automate should be automated. And actually, you should automate everything. Now, am I telling you to go team up with a software engineer and deploy some advanced model? No, it's not what I'm saying. Uh, but the example of a SQL script is perfectly reasonable. You write one script for your data extraction and you will always use that script. Now you might need to make changes to it, but you should not be writing the script every time. Okay. Unless it's so simple where you're saying select all from table or view or whatever it is. And actually setting up views is a great way of kind of retaining that, that script over time if you're always going to be calling for it the same way. You know, that's how we think about uh, uh, kind of standardizing our data. So as soon as something becomes a metric, uh, where I where I work, I will demand that it go into our version control and go into one of our major views and say, okay, we've defined a business rule here. We have a definition of that business rule. It is now going to go into this, uh, the scripts that we're using to extract this from and that we're always going to pull the same way. And then if there's ever an argument about it, it's very simple. What does the script say? Because the script is written and we're not modifying it anymore. So if you say, I have a really good example for you. Um, we had an, uh, uh, an individual, we were calculating, God, how do I say this in one sentence? We were calculating um, um, regulations off of a signature. And signatures uh, were falling off this report. And it was an aging report. And someone said to me, the report is wrong. So I went into the report, and I went through all the code, and, I, and the report's not doing anything. It's not manipulating any data, so the report can't be wrong. So we went back to the, the ETL process where we were grabbing this data from, and in one line somewhere, uh, there was a, 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 an expiration set on the signature date and time. And I said, well, I said, well, I have a question for you. Is the business rule still in place where the signatures expire? And they said, no, that business rule has changed. I was like, oh, well, well there's your problem because nobody updated the code behind this. It the codes and then that's it and then now you've now you we can uh, once again give you really good reproducible results because we have a, a very standardized process that's how you think i have to that's how you have to be with uh, data manipulation um once you set it up and and, and have some type of a formal process it should be running it the same way now if you're running it and every time something's going wrong and you have to get back into that data and manipulate it, you didn't set up that step number two correctly. It should always be a set it and forget it. Okay. Um, uh, point number three, uh, you need to archive the exact versions of all of the external tools and programs that you're using. Okay, you need to watermark, 
everything. And if you're not familiar with the term watermark, it's where you're taking the versions and states of any type of tool that you're using and either keeping it in that state or being able to get it back to that state. And so you need to make sure that like, I think um, I'm gonna, um, for all the, the people who hate Python, I'm sorry, I'm gonna use Python again for an example. So like whenever we're setting up a script to run for, for data manipulation, I'm gonna share it with somebody else. What I do is I, uh, I, I, I print out all of the versions for all the packages. I print out the version of Python that I'm using and I print out uh, my machine statistics. Uh, so that way, if someone, if I'm running a result and time is important, so if I'm running a result and it takes me four seconds to run it and someone else is getting a result and it's taking them five minutes to run it, well, if you apply that to a large data set with millions of records, that five minutes is, no, is not an acceptable runtime. Um, and so we would need to look at, well, what, how are you running it? What machine are you running it on? Did you bounce it off of a server and you shouldn't have done that or whatever? Um, and so all of these things become absolutely critical and that you archive them so that you ha can retain them. So like tools like Python are great uh, because they allow you to get back certain versions. Um, I think like, no, what's that? I just said, yeah, you can get whatever version you want back. Right, you, you, can, you can spin up multiple environments. You can have an environment for one whole experiment with the exact tools in a static state. You know, other visualization softwares will change over time. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pick on Tableau a bit. I mean, it's one of the more prominent BI tools. What Tableau does is, um, you know, it's not the only one out there. There's, a, there's much better tools out there than Tableau, uh, but it's one of the ones that I see people use more frequently. Um, and so Tableau will, will deprecate features just on a whim. And so you'll go to open something back up and a specific formula that you had in one of your calculated fields no longer exists. And so you know you have to rewrite that calculated field, but now you have to retest your data. Because if you're rewriting a deployed dashboard or report uh, or, or any type of visualization that used in a more advanced calculated field, uh, you can't be sure that you've reproduced it the same way. And so I really hate uh, when they do stuff like that. And it's hard to maintain versions, um, I think, effectively with software like that. So unless you're running it on a dedicated machine, sometimes it's hard when you have a whole network of people kind of working off of it. Um, so th those are things that, that you, you absolutely have to keep in mind, um, especially for nuanced software. So if you're using something that's hard to get, make sure that you have a, uh, a, a, an installation file handy. So if something happens, you can load it right back up. Um, and if you can't do that, it's probably not a good software to be using. So apply the NASA principle, have backup for your backup for your backup. And have a backup for that. <laughs> and backup for that too. <laughs> um, then uh, gets into, so we talk about archiving um, and ver uh, specific versions of software. That gets into the version control of what you're doing. And I think an old uh, way of, of writing things, right, is so you always will work with an intern and I'll go onto like their, their shared folder and I'll see the script name, version one, version two, version three, and then version one has a newer modified date than version three. And then they have version 25 and there's no nothing between version three and 25. And I'll just be like, what are you, do, what are you doing with this? Like, what is going on? Um, that's not version control despite you may thinking it it is it's truly not um you have to actually you should be using a version control software there are many out there the most prominent one is git 
Uh, it's not the easiest to use. It's not the hardest to use, but it's the most prominent one, I think, right now. I can't remember the one that we used before we were using Git. I can't remember the name of it, but it functioned the exact same way, and all Git did was just become more popular, and then we probably lost some functions when we moved over to Git. Um, but it, 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 you can very easily uh, download uh, the, the version control. It will run for any operating system, and I think the, the shell commands are real, or the bash commands are really easy to use. Um, and maybe it's not so intuitive to jump around nodes if you're not practiced with it, but there's like like stupid easy software out there, like Source Tree puts out software where you can jump between your branches and you can jump between your commits. And some of the the, error, the messages are a little scary at first, but I think with like 10 minutes of reading, if you're capable of spinning up a, a Git environment, it's, it, it won't take you long to get familiar with it. And that's what you need to do to version control. So what you should be doing is having one copy of an, an of an item that you can get back into multiple states and then branching off of that. And really the, the power of a tool like Git is not necessarily branching when you're collaborating, but branching when you're testing your own stuff. And so if you wanna make changes, you might need to create a parallel branch. And so you have test one, test two, test three, test four, you'll figure out which is the one that you're gonna use, merge that back in, kill off the other branches. Um, and I'm like, I'm really bad because, well, maybe it's a good practice, maybe it's not. If something failed, I typically do not keep it. And and that's because you're, you're going to be setting up so many test environments sometime that it gets hard to remember the reason why something failed. So basically, if it's a failure, I just it's 86 it right away. Yep. And then, you know, and then and then just stick with the successful versions. Um, so version control, absolutely critical. Uh, especially large data sets and multiple scripts that you're going to be running. Um, okay, uh, point number five, uh, record all intermediate results and when possible in standardized formats. So we talked about standard deviation as a great tool like that. That concept right there is how you should be applying these types of terms. So if you have a data set and an outcome that's so specific to the data set and the way that you ran that data set. So if you're capturing, I don't know, things that only occur in fall and you're using leaf color in autumn to have your output, that's not probably a good way of kind of standardizing it, you know? So like having a, a universal measure that you can put something up against um, is a much better way of, of making sure that you can go back to that at a different state in time. And that's kind of the difference between the domain data and the abstraction, because that's an abstraction piece. Abstractions fit into any domain provided the variables line up. And so once you start setting up kind of these abstraction outputs, you can grab them off the shelf every time you have a different type of domain that you need to put it into. And then your reproducibility gets even stronger because you say, well, what we deployed or say what we used in, in this experiment will be the exact same method we used in this experiment. So if, if you ever need to make a change, you're making a change to that abstraction. The downside to this is if that type of, of abstraction method um is wrong well now you have kind of many things that are branching out off of it and so those are you need to test and be careful with it but it's it's more in the favor to use that type of 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 um record keeping and results uh, of being recorded than it is against you um i think good standards are just like agreeing to always use celsius or fahrenheit you can hate the imperial system fine use metric but just always use metric don't ever go back to Imperial. Don't mix it back up. Um, I think easy things like that make it just much faster to get into data and not make a mistake, uh, especially with temperature. 
because uh, all of a sudden you could have thousands of degrees of difference. You know. Same with feet and meters. Like when I worked for an engineer, because like, you know, the GPS system always worked in meters. We always had to convert. But like if you had anything mixed up in your in your uh, field data and your total station data that was in meters, boy, that would really screw up what your actual results were. Your math would be wrong. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you're not talking by a small amount, too. No, you're talking like <laughs> 2.28 feet, you know. Like, not good. <laughs> yeah, especially when it comes to something like surveying. And you got it. That could make the difference between success and failure of a project. So... Uh, yeah, it's 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 absolutely critical uh, uh, practice. Okay, number six uh, for analysis that include randomness, you have to note your random seeds. Okay, so if you don't know anything that I just said, uh, that's fine. Um, I'm gonna ex <laughs> gonna explain it right now, but 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 don't let that just be like ah, I didn't hear that. Um, I don't know what a random seed is. So when you are introducing randomness into an experiment. Uh, typically, you're generating uh, randomness uh, for the re for the uh, way of kind of making maybe test data or for uh, kind of uh, programming needs, or you could be introducing randomness to uh, test a variable uh, for a specific type. Uh, there's many reasons why you would want to actually introduce um, a random apps aspect, but it's a random aspect that you control. And most of the uh, ways that you do this are with a type of randomization generator. And it will generate what you need for you in a very specific way. So I wrote for a fun project a generator that uh, it was an engine and it would produce, what did it produce? It produced um, purchasing data and credit card numbers and information. And so the point was to create a text stripping tool that could process different types of information for the purchases and the type of, of method used for payment. And what was cool about this is that I based it off of a simpler generator uh, that was actually connected with an API to different credit card companies. And the credit card companies were giving out like the sample data of the structure because this helped with like people creating payment methods. So like PayPal or something like that, like they need to have a, a wealth of data available to them. So so this this kind of uh, generator was already out there. Um, so I just took it to the next level. And so one of the things that I had to do is I needed to understand when I was doing this text parsing exactly the way I was generating the names and the way that I was generating the 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 addresses of people because it couldn't be like in Czechoslovakian, right? Like it had it had to be in English, right? That's how this that was the use case. And maybe it needed to be in another language, and maybe I had to write a different one. But I needed to capture that kind of token for the generation, so that way I could always plug it back into the machine and say, okay, give me standard American format and make sure it's in English and make sure that even though that it may not be anywhere near what I had before, it's still going to be the same expected outcome. Um, and so, yes, it's random, but into a, a degree of control. Uh, so randomness and their seeds and that that token or that would you what you would say is your seed. Um, or like the, the uh, what is it? Um, Minecraft, right? It talks about like a seed in Minecraft, right? That's the randomization engine creating the whole world. Uh, so think of it like that. Um, uh, number what was that number six or number seven always store raw data behind plots okay so if you've made a visualization 
and you don't have the underlying data, do not throw that visualization away and recreate it uh, because you don't actually know what you're visualizing. Um, and so one of the things I encourage people to do is be very transparent with the raw data. If you've made a claim and when you make a visualization, you're making a claim about something. Uh, so you should be giving that data unless it's otherwise confidential to the people who you're showing the visualization to. So a lot of the times um, uh, it's in, you know, when we deploy a, uh, a dashboard, um, I will always have a button somewhere that says, give me the raw data. And then they, then you can download it. You can check everything that I did for myself. I will show you all of my calculations. I will show you all the formulas that I used, and then you can show me where I'm wrong and I'll make the fix. Um, but that also like resolves the, well, that you have bad data kind of mentality because there you might get a visualization that doesn't meet expectation. And I'll say, okay, well, show me, show me in the data where it's wrong. And, and so, uh, again, very important practice. Okay. I have, uh, I'm going to go through three in one minute. Okay. Generate hierarchical analysis output in layers of increasing detail that you can inspect so that when you have a multiple analysis, you have steps that you can slice into, and then that increasing detail will make sense. Don't block it all together in one giant script and expect people to understand it. Connect textual statements to underlying results. I think that one kind of speaks for itself. Uh, and provide public access to scripts, runs, and results. Get, get on GitHub, post it out there, get a website going, let people have access to what you have. Uh, and that way there's no question uh, about what claims that you're making. If anyone ever makes a claim and they can't put up the results or the, the underlying information, assume it's a lie. And that's kind of like what, what I live by. I can totally agree with that. And I keep backups of all my greenhouse data and I can't tell you how much hard drive space I've dedicated in redundancy just to store that data in raw form. So the later I can go back and analyze it and really know, you know, whether the visualization I, that I think I produced is accurate or not, or I can have somebody like you look at it and, uh, and really drill into it. But uh, we're rolling up on the end of the show here. Uh, I just want to point people out to your website again, Easy Data Does It, <coughs> excuse me, and also your YouTube channel, Easy Data Does It. Uh, we've been talking with Brian Seco. Brian just walked us through some awesome stuff about data science and visualization and all kinds of interesting stuff. Well, Brian, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I look forward uh, to being back if you, if you have time. Always a pleasure, and I look forward to having you back as well. You have been listening to Comrades in Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacies Network ch YouTube channel. Have a great night, everyone.